and welcome to a very special episode of the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast because today I have a Scottish icon of motorsport joining me on the show today, Alan McNish, a three-time Le Mans winner, four-time Sebring 12-hour winner, four-times Petit Le Mans winner, three-times American Le Mans Series champion, World Endurance Champion, Daytona 24-Hour Class Champion, and last but not least, 1988 British Formula Vauxhall Lotus Champion as well. And now, uh, now poacher turned gamekeeper is team principal of the Audi Sport app Schaeffler Formula E team. Alan, that took a while to get it out. You've had quite a career. Thank you very much, Peter. It, uh, I hope the podcast actually lives up to the intro, for goodness sakes, after that. But I suppose it suggests that it was a long career, but it also means that I'm probably getting old by now when uh, you list it out. Uh, so, but very nice to be on the podcast and uh, thank you very much for having me. No, oh, well, thank, thanks so much for making the time. Now, um, we'll, we'll start back at the beginning. Tell us about your early mm. karting years and growing up in the in the metropolis that is Dumfries. Well, I actually started on the motocross bike, funnily enough, before I got into karting. And uh, my father, uh, he loved motocross and he did it when he was younger and so I uh, had a little 50cc idle jet um, but ultimately I was too small I'm small anyway you know I'm only you know five foot five now but uh, when I was about nine years old then I was absolutely tiny and my feet didn't touch the pegs never mind touch the ground on the bike so my mum was not exactly too keen on this whole two wheel stuff and uh, purely by chance, the next door neighbour, who was a farmer, his son had a cart for running around the fields, just a you know square tube frame chassis, and with a little lawnmower engine on it, and he toodled around, and I had to go on that, um, and enjoyed it. And also from Dumfries was uh, definitely a Scottish racing legend family, not just singular, was uh, the Leslies, Father David and young David Leslie. And it was at the time when young David Leslie was making his way through the junior formulas in the British Championships and winning events. And uh, my father was also helping him as a mechanic. And so I went along to a place called Rowra, uh, which is just in the north of England, just south of Carlisle, and uh, watched the kart race. And father David Leslie organised for me to have a run and uh, then for my first kart. And uh, from that moment onwards, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a, a thought of mine for a career. It was pure fun and entertainment, but uh, I was definitely hooked and the bug was in there. And, you know, you know what it's like. Once it's flown through your veins, he can get out of you. And uh, thankfully, you know, many years down the line, 39 years down the line, to be exact, I'm still enjoying it just as much as I did back then in 1981. Of course, and a very different guys now as well, of course. But. Is it true that you didn't necessarily want to uh, to move out of carts into into racing cars? Was, was, is, is, that no. the, is that the case? Yeah, definitely the case. Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, once I got started in karting, it seemed to be quite quick and I enjoyed it. And I got my first trophy. I'd never won anything. I wasn't very good at school, to, to be honest. didn't really study very much at school. And uh, but when I was in a cart, it was my home. It was where I was confident, where I was comfortable. And uh, I had some very, very good people looking after me. There was David Leslie Jr. and Sr., as I said. Uh, there was also Dave Boyce, another person that's uh, a local Scot and a local from Dumfries as well. And uh, then ultimately Terry Fullerton. And I loved my karting. It was something where probably because I hadn't really experienced anything else that I was 
able to excel at, then this was the one thing. I mean, when I jumped into a car, which is the natural next progression, I have to say I didn't enjoy it at all. Really didn't enjoy it. It was a Formula Ford that was at Knock Hill. It had no grip. It had this funny, stupid sort of gearbox on it and just didn't work for me. Um, but, you know, if you're going to go forward in your career, then it, it had to be really in car racing. And there was and there was some momentum behind my career and there was some momentum behind me as well in the form of uh, the Leslies, but also Akure Koss and Hugh McCaig. And so in some respects, it took a little bit of convincing for me, actually, that this was what I wanted to do as opposed to maybe necessarily for other people. I see. It's hard to hard to imagine now, and then considering what you went on to after that. Now, talking of not, well, I don't know, it, Pete, sorry, but, but uh, just let me say, come back. I'm a big believer that doors open, and you've got to choose the ones that go that are right for you to go through. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, karting was at a very high level, and people were making careers out of karting. You know, they were actually being paid to drive for factory teams and things. And if I had been the way my life had gone, I think I would have been very happy. I don't know necessarily I would have missed what I've done because I wouldn't have known what it was, Mm -hmm. but I would have been happy doing what I did because I loved it. In fact, I was at a kart circuit the other day watching um, a young Colford driving around, and uh, it was just fantastic to be back there at that sort of grassroots but real instinctive driver involvement part of the vehicle. And so I would have been quite happy, I think, if it had gone in that direction. But I suppose, thankfully, in other ways that it uh, I chose and was maybe guided quite strongly down in a, a different path. And who were the big influences to that, Alan, to, to, to pushing you down the, the, the kind of car racing path? Well, I think there was three people that stand out very strongly. Um, initially, there was my father. And uh, my dad was very much the case of, look, if you're going to do it, son, you do it 100 percent or not at all. Mm-hmm. He was not a 50 50 guy. He was a total commitment guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, that mentality he instilled into me. And so dad was very clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to go for it, you go for it. And if you're not, then fine. But, you know, you've 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 got to take chances when they're, they're there in front of you. Uh, second was David Leslie. And David has been a massive, and I'd say both junior and senior, massive inspiration, not only to me, but also to David Coulthard and Dario Franchitti and many others that they they helped along the way and providing the right base and platform that uh, maybe David himself didn't have when he was starting out to be able to leap forward in their careers. And so in that respect, certainly the, the Leslies were a major part of that. And uh, also in introductions and knocking on the doors uh, to the teams at the very early stage. And Hugh McCaig, Curie Cost, because Hugh has supported Scottish drivers, you know, from the 80s, uh, trying to put them on their way, trying to give them the chance and opportunity. You know, we come from a wee country, it's the north of Scotland, and we've got a great tradition in the sport but that doesn't just come by chance it comes by people that are pushing and Hugh definitely for me was one of those and then later on there was other people like Jackie Stewart for example because Jackie uh, definitely was uh, a guiding light in so many ways but right in that first instance I have to say it was my father it was the Leslie's and it was Hugh who all gave you the, the encouragement I mean you know as a Scot who's achieved at the very highest level in motorsport how important would you say is the legacy of drivers like Jim Clark and then 
uh, Sir Jackie Stewart. What impact have they made on the sport for Scotland, would you say? I think it's very important. You see it in every sport. Sport is a great thing to bind a country together and give it direction. You know, politics is one thing, but it's always got two sides. People are fighting against each other in one way or another. With sport, it actually draws people together. And, uh, you know, I remember 1978 and Ali's Tartan Army going off to Argentina. And that whole sort of groundswell from there, uh, how we believed as a country, and the country wasn't in good shape at that time when you look back in it now, but, uh, you know, what could be achieved. And uh, in terms of car racing, then it was very clear that uh, we've had some great successes. Uh, behind me in my office here, I've got a picture of uh, the Jack D type from 56-57, where Curie cost one Le Mans. You talk about, uh, you know, those sort of areas, or you go a little bit further along, you've got Jim Clark, you've got Innes Ireland, who won, he's the first Scot to win a Grand Prix at Watkins Glen, and Jackie Stewart and David Leslie and Colin McRae, and all of these names, they're people to look up to for the next generation, and but they're also, uh, they are people that, and what I've noticed is that everybody gives a little bit back into it as well because we take out of the sport, but I would say the Scottish drivers that you've mentioned have definitely given back into the sport, and that's a very important part of it, especially considering you know we don't exactly have all the facilities that maybe some of the other countries or all the finance that goes into it, the, the governmental finance that other countries do as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've managed to actually chalk up quite a lot more success than maybe... Uh, would have been expected when you looked at it in paper. And I think it is that partly that mentality, but certainly without shadow of a doubt, you needed someone to inspire you. And those inspirations were the names that you mentioned. Yeah. And of course, now, nowadays, I mean, if you're a young Scottish driver now, you're not short of, of similar role models like yourself, Dario and Marino Franchitti, Ryan Diel, Paul Daresta, Rory Butcher, Gordon yes. Chen is a long list. Yep. But what are the... Yes. What, yep. what would you say the other elements that are required to bring through that new generation of Scottish drivers now? Well, I think motorsport's changing and it's changing very dramatically. So what it will be in five years is very different to what it uh, is today and certainly very different to when I started, for example. You know, when we went karting, we would do all of the five circuits in Scotland as club races. You would do the national British championships. Now that infrastructure is not quite the same. Uh, there was Ingolston and Knock Hill. Now there is only Knock Hill in Scotland. And in general, I would have said club racing is a slightly different sort of structure to what it was. It's gone mainly to national championships and mainly one make championships, which is then not necessarily as uh, open from a cost point of view. It's more expensive, being honest about it. And it's a bit of a struggle. You can't do it out the back of a a van and a, a trailer in the same way that we did when we did Formula Ford. Mm -hmm. It's a much more professional field. And so I think it is a much tougher thing. That doesn't mean to say that it's not possible. And I'll give you an example, Gordon Shedden, somebody you mentioned there. Gordon, to me, is a massive, massive inspiration for his determination. Yeah. You know, Gordon sort of basically pulled himself up in every drive that he's got. He's went out there and fought for it. He's a fantastically talented driver. His BTCC championship victories show that. But at the same time, he's got in the right cars because he's been out there fighting. And that mentality is the thing that I think separated him apart. And it's also separated him apart at the difficult times. Now, motorsport today is purely about trying to get yourself in the car in the first place. 
And that's the, the very difficult bit, as we said. But I think that uh, there's other things that are coming. So if I look forward in the next four or five years, I think you will have racing drivers on track. But I think you will also have Scottish virtual racing drivers on, mm. online. I think the, the birth of e-racing and the, and the evolvement of e-racing as an example now in this COVID time, but also how that's going to evolve in the next three to five years is going to be immense, where you will have virtual championships online running alongside championships on track. And I could see Scotland actually having the opportunity to develop drivers into that sphere and actually dominate in those areas in the same way we maybe did on track in the past. But if the circumstances don't allow you to do it on track because of finances, family, whatever it may be, then this is another route to come into it. And I'm very keen that uh, we actually explore all the opportunities north of the border to make sure that we're all inclusive. And uh, the SMRC actually is a good example insofar as they were the first club to actually put an online racing championship together. And it's been a successful starting point. But I uh, see that as, a, as an op- and maybe an example of uh, where some of the Scottish stars of the future could be coming from, but also going to. Uh, and, and it may be that it actually links across the track and it may be that it actually is its own separate entity whatsoever. But I would say that definitely there's a, there is a vision that that could be part of what our motorsport future is going to be. Yeah, I think we, you make a good point about the sim racing and e-racing because it's we're so lucky in motorsport or it, it particularly just in, you know in car racing that it's one of the it's virtually the only sport that can be simulated so closely in your own home with, at relatively little yep. cost i mean for me i commentate five or six nights a week on e-racing it's and it's like you say the standard of driving is uh, is extraordinary as well and while we're on that topic you you were involved in the broadcasting of the virtual 24 hours of le mans tell us about that experience mm. and how that was all came together well, it was an amazing experience, actually, and I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, I'm of the generation that probably missed this e-racing to start. <laughs> you know, my, the first time I was strapping myself into a simulator was in 2013 when uh, it was actually for car development as opposed to anything else. Mm-hmm. And so in that respect, it was an eye-opener for me. Uh, the reason it came around was Le Mans due to COVID, like most many other sporting events, was delayed to the end of the year. However, during that particular time uh, of year, though, that weekend, then they were all set up to do something, and they wanted to keep the story alive in preparation for September when uh, the on-track one runs. And so the virtual Le Mans was sort of born in, in the minds of the ACO and also of the WEC organisation, and Gerard Nouveau, especially in that respect, who's the head of the WEC, And I commentate and do the commentary for the WEC and uh, the ACO for Le Mans. And uh, they called up and said, look, this is what we're doing. This is what we want to do. It's going to be a total of 50 cars. We've got uh, the interest of drivers from F1, IndyCar, obviously sports car racing. Uh, There was discussions on NASCAR. There's Aussie V8s, everything else come together. Over one race, 24 hours, a replication, but a true replication of Le Mans, as in practice, qualifying, race, regulations, penalties, everything else. And in, and also comms team and uh, the actual race director and people running the show, they're the same ones. And so it was exciting. I said yes, clearly, straight away. 
And uh, it, it was actually really interesting to see how it had evolved. And also the mentality of the drivers and teams. You know, they were treating it exactly like a race. Toyota, for example, they were treating it as preparation for the Le Mans 24 hours with the engineer and driver discussions. Uh, you had situations where they had a sim failure. Uh, Simon Pagino had a sim failure with a rig failed, but he had a spare rig that he had borrowed because he knew 24 hours, he's raced 24 hours at Le Mans in Daytona, that these things happen. So he had one prepared, ready to go. And uh, you had Jamie Campbell-Walter, a name that I'm sure you're aware of as well, and Jamie, who's involved with one of the teams, messaging the race director about the way that the regulations were, what was this, what was that, all the way through. So the teams were treating it with a lot of professionalism, I have to say. And uh, that filtered down with the drivers, and it filtered down with the race result. It was a very good, hard-fought race, and I felt that the drivers and the teams that won, the ones that were on the podium, the ones that get the trophies, they deserved it in so much so that uh, they deserved the same trophies as if they had run the actual event in September because the effort they put in, the focus they put in, the, the racing, the lack of, of mistakes they had to make, they had to give perfection to be able to win that. And uh, so I tip my hat off to everybody involved in it from a team and also from the organisation point of view because I would say that was a game changer. That was the one that accelerated e-racing forward probably two or three years and it was the benchmark that every other e-race will have to look up to when they want to do big events. And uh, television bought it, fans loved it, and that's where we are. It certainly was an impressive, uh, an impressive um, exhibition. And I guess it just shows you the strength of the Le Mans brand as well. How much Le Mans, a lot, you know, on the back of the Le Mans brand and the and the track and all, all of it as well. Well, a good time to move on to Le Mans. Tell us about your first mm. time going there with Porsche in 1997. More than 24 minutes of Le Mans, 24 hours of it. You, well, you don't have to, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us about those, because you know, you've know you been in single-seaters for a couple of years, and then sports cars came about. Tell yep. us about that. Well, I was very focused in Formula One, and uh, I'd been test and reserve with McLaren and with Benetton, but ultimately... Uh, the race seat never transpired. And I'd always kept in touch with a gentleman called Jost Capito. And Jost uh, Capito, who is now at Volkswagen and involved in uh, all the RS product, but Jost at that time was in charge of Porsche Super Cup. And he asked me if I would do a race in the Porsche Super Cup, which I did at the British Grand Prix, support in 96. It was a bit of fun. Um, but kept in touch with him through the course of the year. And at the end of the year, he said, look, Porsche is looking to try and reevaluate their driver lineup. They're coming back into sports car racing with the Porsche GT1 uh, hypercar of the then day. And because uh, it was only called a supercar in those days. And uh, they wanted to sort of look to see whether a different driver profile was what they were looking for for the future. So. I went along to some tests with uh, myself and Alex Wurtz, actually. And Alex and I uh, tested, and he went, drove the Mercedes, and I signed for Porsche. Uh, initially, because they had already their drivers sorted out for the 97 season, I was kind of in an ad hoc situation where I was their test development reserve. But I was thrown in to go and race in America or any other races that were going around with the GT1 in preparation for the following season in 98. Um, but one of them was actually Le Mans with Rook Racing and Fabian Rook and his brother. 
and they're technically a very good team. I have to say they were uh, they had some pretty good people, but it was a, a small privateer team against the you know the fighting might of a TWR uh, or you know Porsche factory team or Mercedes or someone like that. And unfortunately, it was a 24-minute experience, which was uh, you know 23 and a half hours, far too short, I've got to say. Uh, coming through the Porsche curves, there's a, there's a long right-hander at the casting section, then it flicks in left over an adverse camber. And to be honest, to this day, I'm not sure whether it was me or whether we had a problem, um, because the car snapped massively as I turned into the left-hander. And uh, there's a broken damper shaft, but completely blunt, not 100% sure if it was pre or post, but the impact was uh, enough to put the car out of the race. So when... You know, I came back the following year and uh, finished the 24 hours that time and was able to come through the Porsche curves in the last lap. And then I think there was a little bit of, well, uh, you got me last year, I got you this year, uh, <laughs> when we thankfully won the event for the first time. And that first that first experience of crossing, uh, did you take the car over the line then for the at the finish when, when you won it in 98? Did you get that? Yes, yes, I started the race. And, yeah, but it wasn't, it, yeah, I've never been in a team where that's structured that mm -hmm. one driver will finish the race it's always been about the rotation sure. we've always decided who started the race that now would feed back to who qualified and then it would feed back to who started the first practice and uh, in that respect it was it was just the rotation if there had been safety cars or different pit stop strategies or whatever then it could have been easily someone else but as it turned out, it was me that was in for um, that last run to the flag, which was uh, one of the nicest, most relief moments of my career, as opposed to necessarily uh, joyous, ecstatic happiness that you would sort of think about it. Because, uh, you know, the emotion and adrenaline that's surging through you for 24 hours, and it's not just 24 hours, it's the whole week and the build-up and everything else, and it suddenly it comes to a crescendo. And uh, for me, I have to say, in every single occasion, it's been about the relief of, thank goodness we've actually done it. We've got it over the line. Now we've done it. And it's like a pressure cooker and uh, the valve goes off. And then, you know, an hour later, you start to absorb it and take it in. But that first moment is purely just relief. I can imagine. The, uh, and, of course, after that first Le Mans, or those first couple of years at Le Mans, it had come after a lot of difficult times in single-seaters, obviously showing, showing the pace and doing very well in Formula 3000 and testing endless miles in Formula 1 cars. But try and describe to me how the difference between the kind of single-seater world and the sports car world and how you're effectively treated as a driver and how they differ. Very simply... I think it's described that in single-seaters, you are one part of the puzzle and you can be replaced in an instant. We've seen that, at, you know, Sebastian Vettel's a good example, four times world champion, everything else. But, uh, you know, he's out and uh, Sainz is in and that's it. You're a spacer between the seat and steering wheel, yeah. nothing else. And, you know, we all know that. Let's be very honest about it. As a driver, you know that. You take it on board. Now, as a team principal, I know that. And, you know, it's purely that's the way the world is. When you go into sports cars, especially with a car manufacturer, then you're actually one of the, the bigger team, not just a driver. You are actually one of the overall team. And uh, so you are treated with, I would say, a little bit more respect, in all honesty, mm -hmm. and uh, gives you that feedback and that comfort. 
then if someone treats you with respect for your driving, but also outside of the cockpit as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is an arm around the shoulder mentality, which is something that I appreciated massively at Porsche. It's something I had at all the times at Audi. And it's something I try and sort of lead through into what I'm doing now. Um, but at the same time, you know, you still have to f perform. There's no question. But uh, it's a slightly different mentality. There's there's no other way around and about it. And it's one that certainly I think was uh, very beneficial to the teams I was at, but also with the driver lineups that I worked with as well. The other thing is, obviously, you have to share your toys with someone else because you've got more than one driver in the car. So there is an element of compromise, but there's also an element of uh, appreciation of the human as an individual. And I was super, super lucky to have Laurent Aiello, who I knew from single-seaters from Formula 3000, but especially Stefan Ortelli when I jumped in initially into sports cars, and then Dindo Capello and Tom Christensen for the majority of my career as my teammates. Because between us all, we all had different skill sets, we all had strengths and weaknesses, but we all knew how to support the other one and to get the maximum out of it. And in terms of friendships, those are friendships that will go to the, you know, go to my grave. And I have to say, I don't think there's many single-seater drivers that would say some of the driver friendships will go to the grave. I think they're all probably in the grave as soon as the season finishes. <laughs> Now you mentioned Tom Christensen there. He's obviously somebody we, we must talk about. Mm. You've you've raced with him in the same car, and you've mm -hmm. had to race against him plenty of times too. Mm -hmm. What were your? So you're probably one of the best people to ask about this. What were your observations during that time? What is it that What is it that he had that made him such a winning machine? Well, Le Mans, he was exceptional in one probably one way where I think Tom was very very good. He played the long game. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say he was always out and out the fastest, um, but he was, without a shadow of a doubt, extremely quick. Um, but he, he played the long game generally very, very well. And uh, part of that long game was his adaptability. And that would be the how the car was, it would be the conditions, it would be whether, you know, we lost a dive plane and suddenly it would understeer a little bit more through the high speed or whatever it may be. He was a very, very adaptable driver. And Tom's, uh, be, partly because of the fact that he was jumping around in his junior days in anything he could get his backside into, then I think it did give him that, that little bit of a skill set for it as well. And Le Mans, for sure, was his type of circuit. It was his type of environment. It was his type of circuit absolutely perfectly to a T. And that, you know, if you were to think of somewhere that was around... Tom's whole environment, it would be there. And, uh, you know, he'll admit very freely that, uh, you know, he was obviously in very good cars with very good teams. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a certain dimension that he also pulled it together um, at times. And that I don't think it can be questioned in any way whatsoever. And so Tommy Boy was uh, interesting personalities because I think him and I were quite similar in personality, but quite dog-headed, I'd say very pushy, um, but we needed, and I think we're, we're all out in agreement with this, we needed Dindo Capello as our sort of calming middleman, and Dindo was the perfect antidote, I would have said, for us, in terms of our, just the way of our working, and also driving styles as well, and so between the three of us, we were able to get through pretty much any situation, good, bad, or ugly. And uh, it was, you know, a fantastic time. And like I say, we're, we're still very good friends right now. 
And still also all part of the Audi family. And that's another thing, which is something that uh, even though we, you know, we retired, what, seven, eight years ago now in general, then, uh, you know, we're still all sort of part of that bigger infrastructure, which is, again, coming back to one of your points earlier on about sports car racing and a difference that in single seaters, you know, I don't think you would have that sort of ambassadorial roles or inclusion, whether it be in single seater teams. No, no, definitely not. And it, it's funny you used that uh, that's the third time I've heard Audi family. Of course, I had your colleague Rahel Fry on uh, last yes. on the last episode, which was a real pleasure yes. to chat to her. And she she referred to it as the Audi family as well, which she's been for 10 years now. And also Andre Lotterer, who's not in the family anymore. Of course, he's gone He's gone over to, to the dark uh, side. To the he's yeah, on the dark yeah. side. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's well let's talk about Audi then, because that's obviously been such a big part of, which still, as you say, still remains a huge part of your career. Audi's win to start mm. ratio is unmatched at Le Mans. From your experience, what were the elements, in your view, that combined together to deliver a success that we we just haven't ever seen before? I think to put it into context, first of all you've got to look at that there's two fights at Le Mans. One is to fight the race, to fight the circuit, to fight the endurance of running a car for 24 hours pretty much flat out in whatever conditions are thrown at you, uh, you know, with 56 other cars or 55 other cars on the circuit. Um, and all of the things that that brings into play, cars blowing up, punctures, all the different bits and pieces, debris, and trying to actually survive that. And then, and that doesn't change any year. That is as tough in every single Le Mans as it ever has been. And uh, then you get uh, competition. And competition comes and goes a little bit through the time. But uh, I've got to say the competition that we've had has uh, ranged from the likes of BMW uh, to, well, in the first days, Toyota, Nissan, Mercedes, and latterly, obviously, with uh, Peugeot and Toyota again. Um, so Toyota twice at the beginning and at the end. And they've came and gone, but uh, Audi was there all the way through. And their ratio is incredible at Le Mans. And I think there's a few reasons behind that. Uh, one of is experience. So working with a group and a team, building it from, from the base up and then following with that team with not necessarily wholesale changes. I think the other thing was having a group of team members, and I include drivers in this, that actually realised that the bigger picture was more important than their little picture. Yes. Now, a driver's little picture is what he sees outside of his visor and through his windscreen, which is his car, and he doesn't care about the rest. Honestly, we don't. And as much as, you know, I, I probably said it in the past about... You know, Audi first. In reality, in my heart of hearts, it was Alan McNish, Dindo Cabello, Tom Christensen first. And, uh, you know, I was very happy if the other car finished a fine second behind us. But that's the way we had. However, we had the controlling guidance over all of us, all of the time of the management being led by Dr. Ulrich. And that strong controlling guidance brought us back to a little bit of reality. And I think that was very important because we fought against each other, but not with the ruthlessness where we would do anything to compromise our sister car that other teams I know for a fact did. And that helped us definitely on our way. And the other one was the brutal focus on strength and reliability. On the old adage that I remember my dad telling me in what, 81 or 82 in Carton that 
to finish first, first you have to finish. And they went through that in a way that I had never seen before in terms of planning for all of the eventualities that may never happen. Hopefully will never happen, but if they do, we're ready. And with a thought process that if a technical problem comes, if something happens, an accident, whatever, if we repair it quicker than the next person, that is performance. And uh, that's something that is very often missed. I don't, I think, less so now than it was in those days. But uh, certainly those, I would say, are the grounding principles behind it. And the win ratio is something every single member of that team should be super proud of because it was incredible, absolutely incredible. And I think it would be very, very difficult to equal, never mind beat, at any time in the future. You never know. These records are always there to be broken, but uh, it is going to be a tough one. I think it was like 84% starts to wins. When a race of that type is just extraordinary, isn't it? Over 24 hours, all the things that can happen to win it that much. But uh, tell us about your initial reaction when you had the first, you first learnt about his plan to run the diesel engine. What was that, that initial thought when, when that idea was uh, floated? Uh, Peter, I thought they were mental. I thought they'd gone <laughs> mad. Uh, Uli Beretsky, who's just retired actually, Beretsky was the godfather for that whole process with uh, Piech, actually, was the head of then um, the Volkswagen group. And uh, Piech wanted to do it. Piech went to Le Mans as head of Porsche Motorsport. And uh, so, therefore, he was always very invested in it. And uh, he wanted to march forward with technology as another first. They had already had success at Le Mans. They had already taken new technologies. TFSI direction injection was one of them. And uh, that was run in 2001, and it's on pretty much every, not just Audi, but also Volkswagen Group car nowadays. So the the technology going from the racing circuit to the road being one big, big criteria of what it was about and what that program was about. And uh, they they came up like this technically with the fuel and also with the techni- technology um, that was available in terms of the pressure of the injector systems and things like that. Now was the time to take a diesel to Le Mans. Nobody else, people had looked at it, but nobody else actually had the, excuse the expression, the balls to go for it. But you can never say that Uli Beretsky shies away from a challenge, that's for <laughs> sure. And uh, him and his team, uh, they produced this this engine. And I have to say, like I said, when I heard about it, I thought they were nuts. Why? Why has nobody else ever done it? There must be a reason. There's got to be a valid reason that everybody else has shied away from it. They've all stuck to an internal combustion engine with petrol driven. And that was something that uh, from an OEM, from a major manufacturer to have that commitment meant that they had to have something behind it or completely insane. But when I saw the, the power figures, I thought maybe he's not quite insane. <laughs> but when I drove the car for the first time in Sebring, um, I toodled out of the pits and I can honestly tell you I was frightened to touch the throttle because I'd spoken to Frank Beeler who was the first driver to drive the car in a test and he said it's just like a rocket ship and I, I came out of the pits uh, you didn't run heated tyres in America so I was just touching the throttle this thing had well we had mo- nearly double the torque of a Formula 1 car and mm-hmm. the same power and uh, so you were sort of tentatively squeezing on the throttle and I came to the hairpin down at turn seven I thought right McNish it's now or never you've got to go for it 
or you're never ever going to press the throttle flat out. And when it took off, and you know, I've done IndyCar tests, I've driven F1 cars here, there, and everywhere, but this was the fastest accelerating thing that I have ever had. And it was one of the ones that, as well that just shifted your whole brain concept because you lost one of the senses being the noise because the engine was so quiet and the wind noise over your helmet was actually louder than the engine noise behind you, even when you were doing 200 miles an hour. And so, therefore, it was a completely sort of brain twist that uh, you had five gears, your rev range was tiny, uh, you were bouncing through the rev lights so quickly because of the torque, and uh, you were having to try and harness this thing that had well over a 1,000 newton meters of torque and 750 or something horsepower. And uh, that was quite a thing to get around. And it, it took... Well, actually, Emanuele Piero and I sat at the Autosport Awards. I remember we were having a wee drinky-poo after the, the awards. And we agreed that it probably took us a year to understand the car and wow. to understand the driving style and the requirements that it needed and it wanted uh, in comparison to what we had before. It wasn't just a case of changing fuel. It was a, the whole characteristic behind it. Tire, tire management, the load going through the tire, the way you drove in and out of the corner, uh, you know, these sort of things took a basically a year of us trying to get on top of it as drivers. Goodness me. But and by course, God, it was quick. I bet. God, it was quick. The, uh, and of course, at a circuit like Le Mans, you've, you've effectively got plenty of room to roam with a car like that with all that power and torque. But when it obviously you had a lot of success in America with that car and, mm. I, I, you know, driving, you know, Long Beach, really tight, twisty street circuit. What was it like driving that car through uh, the streets of Long Beach, mm. like flying a space shuttle through a village? Yeah, I've got to say it was designed for Le Mans. It wasn't designed for Long Beach. It was designed for the Porsche curves that, you know, were in fourth gear doing, what, 160 miles an hour sweeping through there, not the first gear hairpin at Long Beach, where we actually didn't quite have enough steering lock to get round. And so you're butting up against the the wall on the left-hand side, trying to hit the apex and then button up against the wall on the outside on maximum lock partly because of the steering lock and also partly because of the differential structure that we had in the car. But it was a, it was a beast for the higher speed circuits and, and straights as opposed to there. And it, that race itself, when we raced in the LMS, we won the championship. But uh, we were actually racing against the LMP2 cars and they had came into song with the Acura and the Porsches and uh, Dario Franchitti was racing in the Acura and so was Marino actually at times. And uh, that was some of the best racing I've ever had because it wasn't clear cut. Your attack with other competitors came at totally different times on the lap, on the race, through the race. And there was sort of races within races all the way through. But uh, they were always decided right at the end. And there was some brilliant, in fact, at the end of 2007 season, with the last two races were Petit Le Mans, which was nine hour race. And uh, then the four hours of Laguna Seca and or sorry, four hours ago, Laguna Seca. Then we went to Petit and we won Laguna by half a second uh, over Porsche. And we won Petit Le Mans by nine tenths of a second over Porsche. And that was after, you know, like I say, four hours and nine and a half hours of racing. So they were fantastic events. But uh, some of the circuits, as you say, it was it was a wee bit like, as Nelson Peakey said about Monaco, it's like riding your bicycle around your living room. <laughs> and uh, the living room wasn't a very big. 
Well, of course, a lot a lot of people know you from your time in Formula One, but also wins at Le Mans. But America did bring a huge amount of success, in particular Petit Le Mans, mm. as you just mentioned, around that amazing circuit, Road Atlanta. Four wins yeah. there, but probably the most memorable win would be 2008. Now, that, now you, I can see a grimace on your face right now. I, I, I hate to ask, but tell us the story about that 2008 win and the, the, uh, the, the beginning and the end of that race. It's probably one of the races in my total career where I cringe and cry for sadness and happiness, frustration and elation. Uh, it you know, if you think motor racing, you you think of all the expressions that you get thrown at it, you know, then it just covered it in that particular race. We were fighting very, very strongly with Peugeot uh, in, for pole position. And we'd actually even brought different gear shift systems to try and give us anything that we could to get pole. Because it was a mental battle as well as a physical one in pole position even though it doesn't matter over a thousand mile race. In some respects, it was the mental one-upmanship, if you like. And uh, we missed pole by a couple of hundreds. And I'd given it absolutely everything. We'd thrown it, the whole kitchen sink at it. At the same time, the Porsches and the Acuras were just there sniffing at our heels as well. Um, But we have to remember that we stole uh, Le Mans from them that year. And so Peugeot at home in Le Mans, they were definitely their year to win. And we we nicked the trophy and we ran away and left them crying in their uh, potage, as they say, in their <laughs> soup. And so uh, th- they were clearly out for a bit of revenge. We had fought the ELMS championship out and we had stolen that at the last race as well. So, you know, it was a case of there was a lot at stake for Petit. And uh, on the way to the grid... Uh, you come out of the pit lane and toodle up the hill, and it was grid like grandma, as Howden Haynes, our engineer, would say. And uh, so you toodled up the hill, and it then drops down through the S's. Mm-hmm. And between the left-hander and the right-hander of the S's, for some reason, still a little bit unbeknown to me, uh, 25% throttle in second gear, the car lit up the wheels and turned 90 degree left into the wall. And I, I look, I know why it happened. We're on cold tyres. Uh, they're big, wide tyres. It's got a slight bit of camber there. And uh, they carried huge torque. And, you know, you were just in a situation where you weren't loading the tyre to generate the temperature because you were toodling to the grid. It would have been safer on wets in reality. And uh, hit the wall, bounced down the wall and came to a stop with the... And sort of thing. well, I'm not really sure what's happened here. I was totally confused how I'd got from a position of driving to the grid like grandma to actually being sitting on the grass with half of the left-hand side of the car gone. And even the foot rest, actually the clutch rest being off because my foot actually, my left foot was somehow caught behind the clutch with the force of the incident. So I drove back to the pits and radioed in, managed to get the car moving, got it sort of clumping back to the pits and uh, straight into the shed, jumped out uh, with shed. It was a, it was the awning in the truck. Jumped out and into the front while the all the mechanics jumped on the car. Even uh, some of our development engineers were well. One of them was bonding the heel rest onto the onto the side of the monocoque again. And uh, Dindo Capello and Emanuele Piro, who were my teammates that race, came walking in the back of the truck, not the side of the truck. 
So they didn't know anything had happened. They were totally oblivious and went, yeah, how's the car? How's the effing car? Have you seen the car? Obviously, I went off in one a little bit just through anger, frustration, disappointment of what I'd done. You know, I was the driver, you know, and I total supposedly control of the vehicle. So it was down to me. Um, but the guys did a fantastic job to get us out. And we were we drove down the pit lane after the race had started. We were two laps down and I got out just in front of the leader before you went two laps down. Now, in America, you don't have the rule where basically you have to move aside for a blue flag. It's advisory, but you definitely don't give away. Um, a lap when you don't have to. Mm-hmm. So I fought like hell to get the tyres up to temperature and to stay on the lead or just at 1.95 laps back. And uh, then through the course of the next, well, 10 hours, uh, the engineering crew on the pit stand, Dindo, um, Emanuele, and uh, the guys in the, the pits themselves and the mechanics did a most blinding job to give us every opportunity to be in the fight for actually winning the race at the end. And there was no question about it after having dumped it in the way to the grid. I could never have finished the race in anything but winning mm-hmm. because there's no way I could have looked at the the rest of the team actually uh, it straight in the eye without it. You know, there was there was no no seconds in this one. And there was also no way that I could have phoned Dr. Ulrich, our boss at Audi, and told him that I dumped the car on the way to the grid. So he would have probably sent me the bill or something. But uh, it was an exceptional end to the race. And one of my proudest races, as I say, because of the recovery, for not just from the driving, but from the whole team in the way that we never, ever gave up. We fought it right to the end with the belief that you never know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen until the checkered flag. And it requ- required a lot of very robust racing, but uh, that's what it took. And we managed to steal, you know, the three big events from Peugeot that year, being Le Mans 24 Hours, being the ELMS Championship and Petit Le Mans at the end of the season. So it was a, a super crowning end to 2008. But uh, it's one that when I still think of that trip to the grid, I just oh, I still cringe. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry for bringing it up, but that, that's, uh, as you <laughs> say, the story has a happy ending, which is always it's always good. Yeah, yeah. So the, the ending was the positive part. Yeah, the, exactly. the getting to the ending was was a little bit debatable at times. <laughs> now, um, while we're, while we're talking about Audi, do you do you see a potential path for Audi to return to Le Mans uh, in the future, particularly with their ever growing customer racing department and the success that that's had in other forms of sports car racing? Do you see a path for them to return? Well, I think Audi's, if you take all of the motorsport, now in my position, um, I do a few things. I look after the Formula E programme and also uh, sort of coordinate the group motorsport, which is the wider group being linking into Ducati and mainly Lamborghini, mm-hmm. uh, because obviously the MotoGB and World Superbikes are, are reasonably set up and on their own. Um, but at the same time, we are always looking at other motorsport and how it's evolving uh, from the top to the bottom. And the Volkswagen group is part of that as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we do sit on a lot of different commissions uh, just to see which way the motorsport's going and also to try and guide it with the knowledge of the way the car industry is going in the future. And electrification is a big part of it. Um, Le Mans 
is evolving as well. And it's been something that it's done since it started is evolving with technology and being a showcase for technology. And I think it still does that as well or better than pretty much anywhere else. Formula One focuses very much on certain technology, but maybe it's less road car relevant. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the LMDH, which is coming up in the near future, which is effectively quite a common chassis program across the board, but it's focusing very much on the hybridization uh, of the car, then I think it does offer up quite a lot of opportunities. And I think there'll be another sort of turnaround where Le Mans builds up its momentum again. Uh, Garage 56 is also that garage at the end of the pit lane for special projects. Now, it's, I have to say it's not necessarily on our, our timeline, but uh, you, you, know, you would never say never in the sport, that's for sure. And uh, I know we've, and a lot of our motor racing history has been built up around about Le Mans. It's been, you know, we remember the rally times, we remember the dominance in touring car, and we remember Le Mans. And we're trying to do the same in Formula E at the moment with our electrification programs. Um, but, uh, you know, the customer racing is a, is a growing part and it may come through, you know, something as simple as uh, the, if Le Mans changes and goes to a GT3 platform, then we have many, many people around the world that want to race GT3 cars at Le Mans. And so it, it could come through that. It may come through something else. But right now it's not in our planning. But as I said, we keep an eye on that and every other part of the sport as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Formula E then. Of course, you had so many winning winning years with Audi as a driver. When you were chosen to become the team principal of the official Audi Sport team, did the, did the kind of responsibility of that weigh on, on your mind a little bit? Or how, how did you feel going into that um, new opportunity? It kind of, if I go back, I was quite clear. I actually got an email from um, a journalist in America called Kerry Morse on Sunday night after Harry Tinkle, a driver they've been managing since well, 2008 or something, uh, won the IMSA race there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was reminding me that I told him I would never manage drivers and I would never be a team principal. <laughs> um, and it was because knowing how difficult drivers actually are, as in me. Uh, so from that perspective, it was a, it was a case of uh, not necessarily on my my game plan, that was for sure. Um, but when, you know, Dr. Ulrich and Dieter Gass, uh, Dr. Ulrich was the previous boss, Dieter Gass, the current motorsport boss, uh, they sat down and were, and I'd been very involved in how we would look at Formula E if we went into it as a factory programme and gone to all the races and sort of put the planning, if you like, together. And uh, they asked if I would be team principal. They didn't ask, actually. It was, on a, it was on a chart on the wall when we were discussing the finalization of the team structure. And uh, they had my name against it. And we said, well, what's that for? And they explained, <laughs> well, I think it would actually be good. It would be the right thing. Well, okay, I'd never really thought about that, chaps. But uh, once I thought about it, I thought, yeah, well, look, why not? Uh, ultimately, as a team principal, you kind of do a lot of what you do as a driver. You've got to work in direct the engineering crew, you've got to work with the organising bodies. You sometimes have discussion with the stewards. You sometimes you have to work with uh, the sponsors and the marketing and press departments. The biggest single difference is that as a driver, you're looking through your visor for your own entity and your own victory. Whereas and from the team perspective, you've tried to balance out a lot more things. You've got two cars, but you've got to try and balance out things much, much more than the very 
individual focused all about me to hell with the rest attitude that you have as a driver and uh, so you know taken on board I would say that I didn't necessarily appreciate the total gravity until we went to the first race in all honesty when we turned up at the first race in Hong Kong and uh, then we are there as Audi and I'm responsible of leading that charge good and bad then you suddenly you know there is an element of wow this is serious this isn't just for playing around and uh, that is you know it comes to bear when you go racing because racing is what it's all about you know you can test and practice all you want but actually when you get to the racing that's when you know you've got to either put up or shut up and how much of an advantage has it been for you being a, a, a former driver or has, has there been any disadvantages of being a former driver or being a team principal? Uh, yeah, there has been disadvantages and advantages. Advantages that uh, you know what the drivers are going through and you can try and maybe help a little bit with the link between the engineers and the drivers, um, and especially in sort of going forward. Uh, so you certainly have got very good understanding of the sporting regulations inside of it for uh, the development and that that point because you live all of those as a driver. Uh, so, you know, in some respects, the drivers, when they come in with a, a comment or a statement, you know whether it's right or wrong instinctively. <laughs> On the other side of it, when you've got to make a call, which we've had to do and I've had to do, where you have to maybe um, pull a race down, shall we put it that way? Yeah. <laughs> then uh, that's one of the ones that you just never want to make because I've had races where I've had the team order come through and I've been second and, you know, you're... That's what it is. You can't do anything else about it. And I've had it when, you know, we've been leading. So I've had both sides of it. And uh, as much as we never like team orders in the sport, we it's part of it. And you'll never change it. You'll never stop it. And you, it's just one of the things that's involved in a multi-sport like this. Um, but I try very hard to keep it as far away as possible. And thankfully, we've got that general mentality within us that racing, you race to race. You don't compromise your teammate, but you race to race. However, when you're 1-2, as we were in New York in 2000, uh, sorry, in season four, leading by about 10 seconds and we're starting to wheel bang into turn four, then you can see, suddenly see whole championships disappearing, yeah. never mind just race victories. And at that point, sometimes you you, you do have to step in and say, right, guys, that's what it is. You know, now hold on to your positions and run to the flag. And that's where the bigger picture does sometimes come in. Yeah, and was it was it satisfying then to first first year as the team principal to get that team's championship in the bag? Was it was uh, what was it like to to get that in the bag in the first year? Well, it was relief yeah. initially because you know it was a fight from a very very difficult start. It, it kind of reminded me of Petit Le Mans. In a way, that you're talking about 2008, we had a whole load of technical problems at the beginning, inverter failures. We had races uh, where we just dropped the ball as a team. And it was partly the growing of the original structure that was there at Apt before, and then also us coming in as Audi and merging the two together. Um, the inverter was purely a technical issue that we had to resolve. And uh, but once we got going, then we really got going and then the momentum was up and our tails were up and we were rocking and rolling. But I was charting it from a pure points per race basis from about mid-season onwards. And if we continued with the same momentum, 
uh, and the Techita team, DS Techita, who were leading the championship at that point, if they continued with their same momentum, we actually had a crossover on the Saturday night at the final race, who was going to win and who was going to be second. And that's exactly how it turned out. So our 1-2 on the Saturday um, that get, put us into the position to have a chance of winning the team's title on the Sunday was the final sort of springboard from it. And yes, we were extremely proud of it, very pleased, relieved initially when it happened. But again, it was that sort of determined fight and spirit of back against the wall and coming out swinging that uh, mentality that actually put the whole team in that, that place to take the advantage of it when it came up. And ultimately, Techita dropped the ball a little bit under the pressure of what they were maybe going to hold on to being the team's title and we were there ready to pick it up and run with it and we certainly didn't um, but you know that's that's a wee bit history, we're now a year and a half, two years down the line looking at the final races of season six and we're needing the same sort of recovery if we're going to be able to pick up the trophy once again well, I hope my fingers crossed uh, you, you can do that. Now, final question, Alan. This is something I, something I ask all my uh, guests. Uh, I, I give you a mm. wish from the Racing Genie, where you can choose any race you like in any car you like with any co-driver. Now, I will say someone has chosen you as the co-driver already, but I'll tell you that afterwards, who that was. But if you were to any race, any car, and any co-driver, who would you uh, who would you pick? Race, Suzuka. Love the circuit. Okay. And so, therefore, if it's got to be something in this lineup, then I would go for the Suzuka uh, 1,000 kilometres, which is grueling, demanding from the circuit point of view. From it's the middle of July, the temperature uh, it's so humid, so mentally, physically draining, mm-hmm. um, but still on my favourite circuit in the world. Second, obviously, to Knock Hill, but <laughs> the favourite circuit in the world. And. I'm sorry, but I'm going to go for uh, two teammates, and they're, they're, it's for totally different reasons. One of them would be my long-time teammate and wingman would be Dindo Capello, mm-hmm. just purely because we have won so much, we've lost races, we've been happy, we've cried, we've done everything together for such a long, long period of time. Um, and to the point where my son, when I was young, called him daddy's husband uh, because we were, <laughs> we were with each other for so... In fact, I was with him for one year more than I was with my wife. We, spent, we were so busy. So it'd, it'd have to be with Dindo just to rekindle a bit of that flame. And uh, the other one would actually be a driver that's just re-signed to go to Formula 1. would be Fernando Alonso. Oh, okay. Because Fernando... I knew when he jumped into Renault for the first time, because I was the test and reserve driver there, doing all the Friday testing, because that's when they had an extra car mm-hmm. on the Fridays. And very intelligent, very ruthless. Uh, a driver that's very adaptable and had a brain power to be able to take in so many different things mm-hmm. without actually showing the pressure. And uh, I think Fernando has shown that by what he was able to do uh, in Formula One, but also in sports car racing and close to, you know, being in the podium in the Indy 500, even to what he's been doing in sim racing in the last little while. Uh, that I would say, I would, I would really like to see how that dynamic would work. And um, so, yes, I would pick, pick Fernando for, I think he's 
one of the best drivers ever, honestly. And at the same time, Dindle, because he's just, he's fantastic. There's no other thing, way to say it. He's just fantastic. And the car? Oh, heck. Hmm. In sports cars, I've got two loves. I've got the Porsche 1998 GT1 because of the styling of the car. And the car, honestly, it leapfrogged my career. It gave me the kickstart. Mm-hmm. Um, but the styling of it was just beautiful. But I have to say around Suzuka, because I raced around there, it understeered a wee bit too much. Uh, but the car that I loved most out of my whole career outside of an F1 car would be the R10 2008, the Audi R10. Um, because it was the one that had the most power and torque I've ever driven in my life. It had a very good level of downforce, admittedly probably not as efficient as uh, the modern-day car, but huge downforce. But it was a car you had to pick up and you had to drive. You had to throw it around. You had to Mm -hmm. tell it who was boss all the time. If you were a meek, mild driver, then it would eat you alive, this thing. It would just take over. And so it was always a bit of a, a struggle. You know, you felt like you're going into the sort of lion's den, if you like, every time. And um, and it was a, but it was a match. It was, a, and I love driving that car. Um, so yes, I would have to say the the Audi R10. If it was a single seater, the Renault RT23, the 2003 car was the best balanced car I've ever driven. So that one would be if it was a single seater. Ah, okay. Well, I, I can reveal it was Wayne Taylor who chose you. For, uh, oh, wait. Uh, yes, yes. And you know, you'll love this. He initially said, so I interviewed him and his two sons at Daytona this year. Yeah. And he said, uh, yeah. he, straight away, he says, uh, so what car would you do, Wayne? He goes, Audi Diesel, no question. And he says, uh, with Tom Christensen. And then asked the two, asked Jordan and uh, Ricky. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Wayne goes, oh, no, I've choose somebody else. And I was like, oh, well, tell me who. He says, no, I'm not going to choose Tom Christensen. I said, well, who? He goes, Alan McNish. <laughs> so you can, so, you can, so but of course you did you did Daytona with with Wayne did you not in the, was it in the well, Ferrari? Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. Daytona with Wayne, and also I did him as a team boss as well because uh, he was uh, part of the ownership of the team when I drove the for Doyle Reese in 1999, and then again in 2000 it was then called Reese Competizione as we know it now, mm-hmm. and uh, Wayne was there as a driver teammate and. Uh, with uh, Giuseppe, and I loved, you know, the, talking about that 333, you know, it didn't handle very well. Uh, the seating position was a bit odd. The gearbox was very nice, though. I have to say it was really sweet gearbox, and it sang behind you. The music that came out of the engine on the banking was just beautiful, just just beautiful. It was a symphony on its own. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I always enjoyed going to Daytona, but that particular one, we finished second in 1999. We had led, I think, something like 23 and a half hours of the race in wet and dry and horrible conditions. And at the final stop, um, not the final stop, sorry, a couple of before, they, uh, they went to change the discs. So you had to change discs and pans in those days. And the piston popped out. And so we didn't actually get to, we finished second by, you know, a few seconds. Uh, and I uh, managed to get a nice, very nice hat. Um, to say that I'd finished second at Daytona. And so, 
you know, didn't quite pick up the, the big watch for that one. Finished second, actually, with Ryan Diel a few years later as well. Got another hat. It was fantastic. Yeah, no, the, the, I'm sure the Le Mans, you get a Rolex, do you not, when you win Le Mans? Is there a winner's one yeah. for that? There is. In the drawer, there is. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you, you do. Um, that's only been latterly, though. Uh, it's only been really since the mid-2000s that uh, Rolex and Le Mans have joined up in the same way as they've always done with the Rolex 24 at Daytona, and they've sort of put their, their stamp against it. You know, it's it's a significance for me. I've I've kept pretty much all my trophies. Uh, not well, some would say because I'm a hoarder of them, but it's it's actually the stories behind them. It's the significance mm-hmm. of the what they were and and the the trials and tribulations that we had to go through to get them. And each one is it's like a book. And uh, from that perspective, looking at them, and I don't have many here, um, but in that respect, looking at them, it reminds you straight away of uh, certain things that have happened. And it makes you, you know, look back and think, yeah, actually, we we had a pretty good run of it. And certainly from personal perspective, you know, I've been very fortunate that uh, I was able to achieve not the results, but the fact that my career has been built around about something that I love, a passion that I love, and I'm still able to have that opportunity to to have a career with something that is actually, to be honest, it's a big boy's hobby for me, and um, I'm I'm lucky in that respect of timing, but also support that I've had from the very very beginning from uh, my family, but also, like I said, about Hugh and David Leslie and. Dave Boyce and people that are local to Scotland and uh, to have met so many characters along the way through it that uh, it's been a hell of a lot of fun up till now and I'm looking forward to the next chapters as well going forward. Well, I'm sure there's plenty to look forward to in your in your, in your your current role as well. Alan, thank you so much um, for making the, so much time to, to come on the programme. I really do uh, appreciate it. Um, what? Uh, where can people see you at next? Is it for Formula E? Is the next? Uh, when? When can they see you out there? Yes, we've got. Uh, we've got actually the end of our Formula E season is going to be three double header weekends, which is a total of six races. But they're not going to be over weekends. They're going to be during a nine-day period. So we're going to have over half a season in nine days, and that's running from the fifth of August through until the thirteenth of August. And so the championship's going to swing one way or the other, and we're going to have our champions crowned at the end of the night of the 13th. And so from that perspective, it's going to be a pretty intense time for us all, but uh, we're going to be we're going to be going at one absolutely flat out. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much, Alan, for, for coming on the show, and uh, looking forward to catching up again very soon. Peter, thank you very much, and I hope everybody enjoys it and has a, a very safe but very enjoyable rest of 2020 